Would you join me in Lamentations chapter 3, verse number 24. We're working our way, pieces and parts of the book of Lamentations here in this month. And we're looking at a, a theme, where to find hope. We've been on this section here, verse 21 through verse 29, for a couple of weeks. And I'm going to take you there again today and one more time next week. The centerpiece is verse 22 and 23. And I'm especially going to emphasize verse 24 today. But start with me. Listen as I read from verse 21 on through verse 29 again. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent, since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Heavenly Father, help us today as we go through this text. Work in our hearts and work very deeply, I pray, that we might see our place with you. There is so much that we involve ourselves with in this life. And this is a passage that pulls us back and stands us right before your throne. Helps us to evaluate what is our hope. And I pray that you help us today as we go through it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord is my portion. I saw a little... I have on my Facebook page, I have one of the people or groups or whatever it is. It's a Christian devotional group that puts up a saying or a quote from important people from the past. And and so one popped up this last week. It was from Jonathan Edwards. And uh, it said to this effect, and I don't know if I have it exactly word for word, but it was to this effect. To the one who has Christ, he has everything he needs. And he needs nothing else. That kind of made me stop and think. To the one who has Christ, he has everything he needs. And he needs nothing else. We've been going through a fascinating study here in this book called Lamentations. It's not a happy book. It's matter of fact, it's really a hard book to, to read chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 especially. I think it's fascinating, but I think it's also challenging anytime you study the Old Testament. It's it's like watching a disaster. And for some reason, we're drawn to it. We're drawn to it. When I was writing my book, Heaven and the Believer, I used the word rubberneck in my text because it was trying to express a, a phrase I wanted to get Um, I was talking about the attraction that we have for the tribulation. Well, we like to 
somehow read about it, but we're glad we're not going to be there. We want to know what's going to happen, but it has nothing to do with us. It's kind of like what I saw daily on the expressway when I worked in Chicago and lived in Indiana, and there were accidents all the time. And uh, most of the time it was on the other side of the road, but the lanes we were in were all stopping because what did we want to do? We wanted to see the accident. They call that rubbernecking. All right, where you're turning your head, and really it is. Look it up in your dictionary, you'll see. It's the straining and the maneuvering to get a better view of the accident scene. All right? And I always thought theologically, that's what we do when we read about the tribulation period, that we're doing that thing. Well, the editors wouldn't let me put that word in my book. <laughs> they took it out and they said, we've got a better way of expressing it. I don't know. I kind of liked it. I thought after they were done, I was going to slip it back in there, but I didn't. I just think that it was kind of a funny phrase anyway. When you're studying the book of Lamentations with me, that's somewhat what we're doing here. We're, we're looking at a calamity. We're looking at a horrific situation. We're very glad that it's not our story. At least when we're reading it, it's not literally our story. It's not historically our story. It's the story of Judah. Back in the year 586 B.C., when the Babylonians came and they attacked the city and they captured the city and they tore down the walls and they tore up the temple and they lit it on fire. And Jeremiah sat there and watched. As we would have done too, I think. But that was an Old Testament story and that wasn't us. We weren't there and it wasn't about us. But as we know from Scripture... Those things were recorded for us, that we might read it and we might learn from an example. And sometimes the examples are great that we can learn from. There are heroes, we call, of the faith that we say, boy, I'd like to be like a Daniel. I'd like to have the courage like a Daniel. But at most of the time, the Old Testament is how not to do it. When you read it, you say, no, I don't want to go down that road. I don't want to be like that. And I don't want that end result at all. As we're dealing with the question, where do we find hope? Here in this passage, 21, 22, 23, 24, the word hope kind of pops out there. Verse 21, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We love those words. Those words stand out in a horrific text where there's nothing but disaster on all sides of it. All sides of it. Our hope, you see, is found not in our circumstances, not in the surroundings, but in our Lord. And what we learn from this text especially is that our hope is in the character of our Lord and in the actions of our Lord, because that's what we receive. That's what we see, and that's what we trust. It's all about our Lord. Again, taking the pronoun off of I and turning it on Him, it changes the whole picture. Changes the whole picture. Working from that very thing as we're working through our passage. I've spent a couple of weeks on an interesting thing that shows up in the study of the book of Lamentations. And that is, I told you last week, in the Greek Septuagint, chapter 
23, 23, and 24 are all missing. And it's the most depressing thing to read then. You're going through there and there's no hope at all. We talked about that. And I'm not going to rehash all that. If you want to hear it, we did put it on the website. But we found last week what I believe was the reason, or at least that's what they say, the reason for that missing in the Septuagint translation was that it was an oversight. An accidental thing. The, the scribe had turned his head for a few minutes. And he was writing in verse 21, and when he came back, he started in verse 25 and just kept going and missed it altogether. There was a term for that. Remember what it was? Parablepsis. Do I have to go through all this again? Parablepsis. It's going to be a vocabulary word for you. That, that's where we, we excuse our actions because it was a slight mistake. We turned our head for a minute. Inadvertent, wasn't on purpose. It was an accident, a minor blunder, whatever you want to call it. It wasn't meant, but it happened. We all know we do that in different ways. But I found it interesting that really, that's been our excuse for years and years. We say, well, Lord, the sin was just a little thing. We minimize it. We give excuses. We've got lots of excuses. We've got books of excuses. And we've been doing that for years. And I'm not going to give these people a lot of wiggle room, um, but I do know that when we do our best to minimize sin, God never does. And that's what we've been looking at in this whole book, is that God did not minimize the sin that these people had done. God's penalty for sin, remember, is death. That's big sin, little sin. Doesn't matter. He took it so seriously that he gave his own son to die for our sins. That's an incredible act that he would do. So, obviously, we don't say that that was a mistake, do we? So, as we spend time in Lamentations, viewing the nature of sin with Judah, it's not a pretty sight, I know. I'm glad that God didn't accidentally leave those verses out of our text. (laughs) We need verse 22, 23, and 24. We need to see Him. When all things are falling apart around us, we need to see Him. You know, after viewing the, the mess a man can make, it's great to see the mercy of our God. It's great to see that. Today we're going to look especially in chapter number 2 especially in chapter number 2. Now, we're going to go there in just a few minutes. And I I want to tell you, if you thought chapter 1 was tough, chapter 2, let's put it this way. It is going to reveal to us the reality of the price of sin. You ever heard the phrase sticker shock? Be prepared. Because the cost of sin is incredible. And it's expressed all the way through chapter number 2. It's a price tag. The price tag of sin. Before we go there, though, I know we're eager to see it. Let's look at verse 24 for a minute. We're going to hit it on both ends. Here and then at the very end. So I want you to see a phrase that many times when we're flying through the passage, we emphasize its faithfulness, its compassion, its kindnesses, and all these things. But this first phrase of verse 24 has caught my attention, and I want you to see it. The Lord is my portion. 
The Lord is my portion. Anthony's pulling it up on his Strong's Concordance right now. says, what is that word? Portion. When he pulls it up, he's going to see the word smoothness. Smoothness? The Lord is my smoothness? That doesn't sound right at all, does it? That sounds a little odd, doesn't it? How does that become portion? Well, here's an interesting word, the word chelag. Chelag, or however they pronounce it better in Hebrew, I don't. But uh, it, it comes from a word meaning smoothness. Now, you could use it in the terms of flattery, smooth speech. You know, you could flatter somebody with such a word like that. But it also spoke of receiving an inheritance. To receive your allotment, to receive your, your part or your portion. And that's the word right here in the text that most English translation uses. The smoothness is in reference to smooth stones that they use to cast a lot. You've heard of that in the Old Testament. They, they cast lots for things. Like in the days of Joshua, and there's about five or six chapters of Joshua... 14, 15, 16, all the way up to 19, where they were dividing up the promised land. And when they came into that, there were two and a half tribes going to stay over on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and the others were coming into the promised land, and the God, God gave Joshua instructions to cast a lot to say, who gets what? It was not the Oklahoma land rush. All right, They didn't go boom and rush in there. Instead, they rolled these stones. And I don't know, I always pictured dice, maybe you do too with the concept anyway. But they had smooth stones. And somehow that gave them direction. And the Lord used that to tell them, this is Benjamin's lot, and this is Naphtali's lot, and such like that. And so the word smoothness in that particular term came to reference what it brought them. And that was their lot. That was their portion. That's what they received. Now, it's a very important word for us this morning because you say, well, what, what does that have to do with anything? Well, in the Old Testament, they understood that what came from the lot was a decision from the Lord. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every, but it's every decision is from the Lord. They trusted that whatever showed up, that was God's direction for them. And maybe you're thinking, well, maybe we should try that. <laughs> Good idea for today, right? Well, remember, they didn't have God's recorded word. They, they didn't have Bibles like you carry around today. They sought the Lord's direction, and they went through the lot to do that. But you have God's word. And that's his direction for us. And that's where we need to go. So don't, don't figure out what's for dinner today by casting a lot or something like that. All right? Matter of fact, he's not even going to tell you what's for dinner if you've pulled out Jeremiah or whatever. That's his direction for you. You don't need to seek it outside of what his word has said and prayer to him. You don't need a lot. But that's the way they operated because they didn't have a copy of God's word. And that was important for them. So what is my point? My point is, when it references a portion, they're talking about an inheritance. And let me put this down real simple. Primarily, an inheritance is that which you are given. Your wage is what you deserve. Your portion is what you're given. 
Your wage is what you deserve. Chapter 2 is what you deserve. That's what chapter 2 is in this book. Why did God crush Jerusalem? Why did he take them down such a horrible road? They deserved it. Chapter 3 is what he gave them. There's a difference. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But I want to take you through chapter 2 and show you the consequence of sin. Recall, this is a price tag, and it is very, very high. Let's see if we can keep a list, all right? Maybe some of you are list keepers. And if we start a list, and these are just my terms I'm going to throw out with each of these, and you can modify it however you want. You can make however list you want, but I want to give you a clue. Let me see. Fifty-five things. You ready? Okay. This is what it cost Judah to have sinned. What it cost Judah. Start with item number one. It cost Judah its reputation. Chapter 2, verse 1. We're just going to go right through the verses, so follow along. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He has cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. When you speak of somebody's glory, it's related to fame. It's related to reputation. Hebrew concepts. It's what other people think of you. Sin has a remarkable way of destroying one's reputation, doesn't it? Especially, I'm mindful of this, but especially people in ministry. Number two, it caused Judah the life of its people. Number three, it cost them the defense against enemies. Number four, it cost them the kingdom and its rulers. All of that in verse two. The Lord has swallowed up. He has not spared all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath he has thrown down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. So it cost the life of their people. It cost their defense against enemies. It cost them their kingdom and its rulers. Number 5, 6, and 7 in verse 3. It cost them their military might and their potential for victory. Number six, it cost them the Lord's protection from the enemy. Number seven, it cost them their buildings and their houses that were burnt with fire. Verse three, in fierce anger he cut off all the strength of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. He is burnt in Jacob like a flaming fire consuming round about. Number 8 and 9 in verse 4. It cost them their peace with the Lord. He has become their enemy. Number 9. It cost them the lives of the ones they hold most dear. So verse 4 reads, He has bent his bow like an enemy. He has set his right hand like an adversary and slain all that were pleasant to the eye. 
in the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his wrath like fire. 10, 11, and 12 are in the next verse. It cost them their palaces. It cost them their military outposts. It cost them the, their joy and comfort. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has destroyed its strongholds and multiplied in the daughters of Judah mourning and moaning. Verse number 6 has a bunch. 13 through 17. It cost them their places of worship. Their place of worship. In other words, the temple. It cost them the opportunity to meet and worship together. It cost them the celebrations and the holidays. It cost them their king. It cost them their priest. Verse 6. He has violently treated his tabernacle like a garden booth. He has destroyed his appointed meeting places. The Lord has caused to be forgotten the appointed feast and Sabbath in Zion. He has despised king and priest in the indignation of his anger. Verse number 7 gives you three more. 18 through 20. It cost them their forgiveness and relief that a sacrifice brought. It cost them access to the Lord. It cost them the beauty of the palace and the excitement of the temple programs. Verse 7 says, the Lord has rejected his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have been made a noise in the house of the Lord and in the day of the appointed feast. Verse 8 just states one. It cost them their city. Jerusalem, their capital, its walls, its stairs, its structure, everything about that city, the Lord determined to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not restrained his hand from destroying, and he has caused rampart and wall to lament. They have languished together. Verse number 9 has three, four. 22 through 25. It cost them the security of their city gates. It cost them the leaders taken in exile. It cost them the law, their law and the provisions for orderliness. It cost them their prophets and the message from the Lord. For verse 9 says, Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princess are among the nations. The law is no more. Also, her prophets find no vision from the Lord. We're halfway through, folks. How are you doing? Verse 10 has two more. It cost them their elders and the wisdom they impart. It cost them their hope and their future. Verse 10 says, The elders of the daughters of Zion sit on the ground. They are silent. They have thrown dust on their heads. They have girded themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem have bowed their head to the ground. 
The next verse, number 11, has four more things. It cost them their peace and joy. It cost them a troubled spirit. It cost them a broken heart. It cost them the lives of their children. Verse 11 says, My eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. With, when little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city. In verse 12, there's three more. It costs them their food and drink. It costs them the ability to provide for their little ones. It costs them the tragedy of watching a child perish. Verse 12 says, They say to their mothers, Where is grain and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the street of the city, and their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. Verse 13, it costs them the ability to respond in a reasonable way to correction. It costs them the comparison to one that is normal. Any, it costs them any comparison to one who is normal. It costs them their comfort. It costs them their recovery. How shall I admonish you, verse 13 says, to what shall I compare you, O daughter of Zion? To what shall I liken you as I comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as a sea. Who can heal you? Verse 14. Four more. It costs them the privilege of hearing the truth. It costs them the accurate words that would have corrected their sins. It cost them their freedom. It cost them direction and advice. Your prophets have seen for you false and foolish visions, and they have not exposed your iniquity so as to restore you from captivity, but they have seen for you false and misleading oracles. Item 42 and 43, if you're keeping a tally, is in verse 15. It costs them their standing among the neighbors, and it costs them the honor of their city. Verse 15 says, All who pass along this way clap their hands in derision at you. They hiss and they shake their heads at the daughters of Zion. Is this the city which they said is a perfection of beauty and a joy to all the earth? Verse 16, there's two more. It costs them welcome greetings and good wishes from others. It costs them the pain of mocking and defeat. All your enemies have opened wide their mouth against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day that we've waited for. We have reached it. We have seen it. Verse 17 has three more. It costs them the good things which the Lord would have done for them. It cost them the wrath of God. It cost them the same of losing to the enemy. Verse 17, the Lord has done what he has purposed. 
He has accomplished his word which he has commanded from days of old. He has thrown down without sparing, and he caused the enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the might of your adversaries. Verse 18, it cost them any relief or rest. Their hearts cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let your tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Let your eyes have no rest. Verse 19 is another one. It costs them anguish in unanswered prayer. Arise, cry aloud in the night. At the beginning of the night, watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to Him for the life of your little ones who are faint because of hunger at the head of every street. The next two, well, the next one particularly, which I have number 50 on my list in verse 20, I'm not going to read it to you. I want you to read verse number 20. I won't read it to you. There's children present. Wow. Number 51. It cost them the lives of their children, their priests, and their prophets. Verse 22 is staggering. I mean, 20 is staggering. On to verse 21. Number 52 on my list. It cost them the promise the future has for their descendants. On the ground, in the streets, lie young and old. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. They have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered. You have not spared. In verse 22, the last three, it cost them terror. It cost them escape. It cost them their lives. You called as in the day of the appointed feast, my terrors on every side. And there is no one who escaped or survived in the day of the Lord's anger. Those whom I bored and bore and reared, my enemy annihilated them. Is that an awful list or what? If you say, boy, Pastor, I couldn't keep up with 55 items. You read them too fast. All you have to do in one column is say, what does it cost them? Everything. That's the one word that sums it up. It cost them everything. Their lives, their peace, their social well-being, their spiritual well-being, their emotional well-being, their economic well-being. They lost everything. Their worship services were gone. Their leadership was gone. The wisdom that comes from wise people, it was gone. The word from the Lord was gone. There was nothing, nothing, nothing. And they couldn't even bring a sacrifice. The Lord wouldn't hear it. They had nothing. All they saw was disaster, calamity, wrath. And it hit them. And it hit their family, and it hit their children, and it hit their future, and it hit their city, and it hit everything. And they stood there with nothing. Nothing. Can you picture it? 
you stand on your spot and you look around you, it's gone. It's gone. When I was a teenager, there was a family in our church. Their house caught fire during the night. Water heater. Strange thing, suddenly it, it burst into flames. They got out of the house. Thank the Lord for that. It was because one of the children was scared of thunder. And they thought there was a thunderstorm coming. They could hear the popping sounds. And so they ran into mom and dad's room and said, it's going to be a thunderstorm. And he said, I don't think so. But he heard the sound. And it was enough of alarm that they got out. But that's all. We went there the next couple of days to help them. There was nothing left. What a sad sight that is. In our day and age, think of all the stuff we have in our houses. Think of what all that represents. Here's why it hits the mother the most. The pictures are gone. The pictures are gone. What's it like to lose everything? I don't know. I don't know. I read these things and I, I stand back and, and I do what Lamentations 3 says. Put your hand over your mouth. Don't say a word. What can you say when you see such devastation all about you? This is what Jeremiah viewed. He saw the awful price tag of sin. And don't think for a minute it's just an Old Testament story. Because when we move it into our day and age, sin still stains and taints and destroys. Always. I can't think of a single thing that sin does that's good for you. Can you? We think for a moment that there's something positive in it. We think there's a pleasure in it. It's a promise that's empty. Sin is a slave maker every single time. It is a murderer every single time. It's a thief that will take everything you have. It does. God made it clear. With sin, you lose all. For the soul that sins will die. And the wages of sin is death. Our world sugarcoats it. You know that. It takes what's wrong and says it's right. And they throw it in our face. It doesn't even want its sins exposed. Go ahead and tell them they're wrong. And it sounds just like John 3, 19 and 20. Listen to it. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds would be exposed. That's a headline to every newspaper you're going to see. We have seen all over our country, and people are calling it right in their own eyes, and they're excusing it, and if you express the truth, they don't want to hear it. That's our land, folks. That's our land. We know for sure that if we walk out into the field and we plant wheat seed, that wheat is going to come up. And what Paul told to the Galatians was something simple. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh 
will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. God said this. It's very clear. We may not have enjoyed listening to Lamentations 2 this morning. I didn't enjoy studying it. I didn't like that list. So the Lord, can't we have a happy tune today? This is it. The consequence of sin is terrible. It's terrible. Let's not minimize it. Let's not say it's something other than what God has said. The price tag for sin is very high. Who can pay it? You? Me? No. We can't. Because chapter 2 is what we deserved. Chapter 3 is what we were given. That's why I love verse number 24. That little phrase, folks, is very important. Because an inheritance is what you are given. We do not deserve the Lord's loving kindnesses. We do not deserve the Lord's compassion. Thankfully, they're not based on us. (laughs) They're based on Him and His faithfulness. We do not deserve a portion from the Lord in any way. But make this very understood. Sin has taken everything away, just like Jeremiah witnessed. And he even said, I have nothing left of what I had before. But I have something that has been given to me that has not been lost to me. The Lord is my portion. What he said was very much echoed by what I said Jonathan Edwards recorded. The one who has Christ has need of nothing else. Picture everything gone, but you still have Christ. Is that enough for you? Jeremiah says, that's all I've got. The Lord is my portion. He's my portion. It's what he's given to me. I see a similarity, folks, in the fact that sin has taken everything from us. But if we have the Lord, we have everything we need. What an act of mercy this displays before us. What an act of love. I want to remind you of a passage you know very well, but how it stands out right now, it's from Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read to you the first five verses. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, All them we too, all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh. We indulged the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's what we deserved. But what we were given is in the next verse. But God, who is rich in mercy... And because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you are saved. Wow! He did that for me? He did that for you? And he went on to add in the next two verses, and he raised us up in him. 
And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, these are two very important words. So that. Why? Why, Lord, did you do that? Why did you crush them because of their sin? Why did you give them compassion? Why did you give them a portion? Why, Lord? Because. So that. And it's true for you and me too. For the ages to come. Forever. Forever and ever and ever. He might always show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Throughout eternity, anytime somebody says, what does God's love look like? They're going to point to you. They're going to point to me and say, that's what God's love can do. If you want to talk about his mercy, he's going to say, look at my trophies of mercy here. They're all my children. They were that, but look what I gave to them. Mercy, grace, compassion, love. Did we deserve it? No. But who deserves the glory? He does. Forever and ever and ever. Jeremiah could stand there in the ashes and say, the Lord is my portion. And he knew that's all he needed. How about you? How about you? When you read a text like this, I know it's a hard one. But we've been down roads, haven't we? The Lord has been very kind to us, hasn't he? He's been very gracious to us. I hope that from your own heart this morning, from your own soul, you could say, with Jeremiah, the Lord is my portion. It's all I need. Do you know the Lord? I'll ask you again. I asked you last week, but I'll ask you again. You might not have been here. I don't want you to go home without knowing the Lord. He loves you. He knows you. And he sent his son to die for you. There's your hope. Put your faith in Him. Only in Him will you find hope. Only in Him will you find what you're looking for. The peace, the love, the security. All of that is in Christ Jesus. Because there's no other name that you can be saved but by His. And if you want to talk to me about that or talk to anybody else in this room, grab them and say, hey, give me 10, 15 minutes of your time. I want to talk to you about Jesus. We want to talk to about him too. He's my portion. Is he yours? Heavenly Father, your word is fantastic. Wow, does it take us on the extremes. From absolute loss to absolute rapture. Just by the movement of your hand in mercy and in love and in compassion. I'm so glad you're faithful. I'm so glad you have loving kindness. You have mercy and you have compassion. And you have aimed them our way. I'm so glad you sent your son to save us because we were unsavable. And you did it. And you get the glory. Thank you. Thank you for showing this to us again today. For bringing us to this place where we stand before you. We acknowledge Christ is all we need, and we need nothing else. Praise you for that, in Jesus' name. Amen.